For today's uh, word and as part of this next season of discipleship that we are in, I wanted to share with you a little bit of my personal testimony. I wanted to share with you that when I came to this country, I, I really struggled. I actually didn't learn to speak English uh, until uh, about a year after I first came here. Um, and the reason why was because I didn't actually interact with a lot of English speakers. I lived in an almost exclusive Italian, Spanish and Portuguese speaking neighborhood in Melbourne. And uh, my first language that I learned in this country was actually Italian. Um, because it was much easier to communicate with the store owners and the grocery store owners um, than try to actually acquire this language of English. It was just such a, a, a long bridge for me to cross at the time. And one of the things that really, really hurt me was that the school I was attending didn't actually have, they had an ESL program, but they didn't have the kind of ESL program that meant that I could easily participate. So I was actually put into, into the disability program. According to Victorian education, my lack of capacity in English was because of a learning disability. Can you believe that? And yet, so many other people who have come to this country have experienced the same thing. That sense of disconnection meant that I eventually went over the top to try and ingratiate myself and, and learn how to connect with people in the Australian context. I masked my accent. I would put on an Australian accent so that I could just be accepted. And I know it's not very good anymore, but uh, believe it or not, people uh, thought that I was Lebanese or something like that. You see, what it did was it meant that people didn't know who I was. I even went by a different name. I went by the name Steve for many, many years. And it was really hard because I felt like nobody really knew me. The first question usually out of people's lips was, where are you from? Because even though I had the accent, I had the name, I did not fit. And that sense of not fitting in was not just at school and in the wider community, it was also in the spiritual space. I was a Presbyterian growing up in the Presbyterian church. I was playing football for one of the largest Presbyterian churches in the city and uh, scoring goals for Jesus, yes, and all that. But I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> See, I didn't speak the language of English. I spoke the language of football. <laughs> and that was much easier bridge for me to cross. Friends, I want to share with you that even to this day, I don't fully reveal who I am other than in those personal relationships. But even that came after a long time of um, feeling that sense of, of people uh, that I can trust and that I can connect with them. So today I wanted to share with you, first of all, my real name. Did you know that Esteban Lievano is not actually my real name? My real name is Esteban David Lievano Sena Echeverri Alorado Vallejo Lopez Sanchez. <laughs> did, you want it, did you want it again? Yeah. Okay. Esteban David Lievano Echeverri Alvarado Vallejo Lopez Sanchez. So, for the Spanish-speaking year, and maybe for my Brazilian friends, they can hear there that there are three noble names of Spain. So there are three names there. Sanchez, Lopez, and Vallejo are within the stories of El Mio Cid. You may have heard of El Cid. It was portrayed by... Um, 
Charlton Heston. Phil, I was looking, I was, I was like, I knew Phil was going to know, but that, it came from the back. Thank you. Charlton Heston played El Mio Cid. So El Mio Cid is actually from the region of Spain that my ancestors are from. And one of my names actually relates to his family. Um, and those names that are there are my family, my background, where I've come from. For the Spanish-speaking year, they hear those names and they can pinpoint me among the families of Latin America and Spain and that connection. It is something that I have with pride and honor and my kids have learned their real names as well. And they've learned what importance that has for them as individuals. Up until the year 2001, I went by Steve Lovano. And um, two things happened that year that were really significant for me, which really connect with the story we heard today. The first is I filled out a tax reform, a tax form, and it was rejected because obviously I wrote Steve Lovano and that's not my name. And so the government said, who is this person? No, thank you. We're not charging you for tax. And so I needed to actually get all of my documentation, all my employment documentation, all of that stuff. Feel like Mara's nodding her head. She knows, she knows the drama. <laughs> I had to get it all filled out and I had to go and I had to sit in a little office and explain why I have two surnames. What? What's going on? So I had to go ahead and explain that. But I did. I did. And eventually I had that all sorted. The other thing that happened is God called us out of the context of worship where we were and into a multicultural church. And that was the first time that people began calling me Esteban. See, I don't mind that you don't say Esteban. The sounds of that name don't exist in your language, and that's fine. You can call me by the sounds that exist in your language, which is Esteban. That is absolutely fine. But you see, that was the first time that that had ever happened. And I remember somebody actually said to me, Esteban, I want you to come and pray. And it wasn't the voice of the minister. I mean, it came through the minister, yes. But friends, in so many ways, that was the voice of God affirming who I actually was. And in this context with Samoans and Koreans and Taiwanese and Tongans and the odd Aussie, um, not odd because they were, sorry, that sounded really bad, didn't it? The very normal, very nice, but few Aussies that were there. I said if I could, if I could say that prayer in my language. And it was the first time I had publicly spoken in my language, in my life. But it didn't feel public to me. It felt like I was talking directly to my God. It felt like I was answering his invitation. My friends, yes, I hope this, these stories, this story, this testimony helps you understand me a little bit better. Helps you understand the plight of some of our members who are undergoing this discovery of spirituality, identity, and journey in a multicultural, intercultural space. But above all else, I hope it helps you understand that when we come to God, we need to come as our genuine selves, our, our, as our authentic selves. Because He knows your name. Because He's ready to call you by it. And that all that stuff that we put between us and God, we're often doing it for the world. We're often doing it to compromise so that we can seem appropriate for the world. And that's not what God wants. 
We're not going to impress God by putting on an accent, by being called by a different name, but we are going to connect with God deeply if it is our authentic selves that we bring before Him in worship. Are you with me, church? This is what the story of Daniel and what we'll be exploring for the next month really says to me. Because we live in a world that is saying, you know what, Christians are corrupt, they're rotten, they're mediocre, they say one thing and they do something else. So I don't want to identify that way anymore. If that's what the world thinks, that's not me. And I can say that with true authenticity. But I will say that I am a follower of Christ. I will say that I am a child of God. I will say and I will affirm that I am a servant of the one who gave his life for me. And these are the titles and epithets that we not only need to own for ourselves, but for God. And not for the world out there. So that's my prayer for our learning for this season. And I hope as we open this word, some of that story will connect and resonate with you as well. So I invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray. Father, bless us with an understanding of this. As we commit this time, we gather around your word to you. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, given that today is um, communion, it's going to be a short one, but that's all right. I'm sorry, I'm having some difficulty here. Betty, I'm just going to get you to run it for me. Can we go to that first slide? And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand. And I've emphasized this section for you, along with some of the articles of the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put it in the treasure house of his God. One of the things I want to tell you about the book of Daniel is that Hebrew professors love it. They love the book of Daniel because they'll say, I'm going to assign you three verses to translate from the book of Daniel. And you're a first year Hebrew student and you've just learned what the characters are. You're like, okay, no worries. And then you go home and you're, oh, 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 hang on a minute. That, that doesn't make any sense. And, the, and, and what's, what's going on here? And then, and then you go back to your professor and you say, oh, I'm sorry, sir, I, I, I couldn't translate. And he said, yeah, because it's in Aramaic. That's right. It's in actually a different language than the one that was spoken and the one that is written in the rest of Scripture. Why do I want you to know that? Because I want you to understand just how important it was in this story, and even for those who were reading it, to feel that disconnect. Now, it's written in a way where the Hebrew speaker can pick it up and understand it. So effectively, think about it as if it's being delivered in a very strong Scottish accent or something like that. Do you know what I mean? And it just takes you that little bit of extra work to understand it. But that was intentional. That was on purpose. That was so that you, as the audience, did not automatically connect with it. That you would need to make that leap in the same way how Daniel and his peers did. Because they were thrust into this world which they did not understand. Now, I've highlighted this line here so that you understand something so important that is right there in the very second verse of Daniel. He, God delivered into... He delivered into the Babylonian king, the king of Judah, and the articles of the temple of God. These things were precious to God, weren't they? They were important to him. 
And yet at this time, the people of Israel, they were abusing. They were not honoring God. They were not following His ways. So for God, it would be better that these things were no longer in their hands, in His children's hands, and instead in the enemy's hands. That is how much He had basically just written off that whole situation. Isn't that terrible? Doesn't that hurt? There's a gorgeous church on Hutt Street in Adelaide. Beautiful. About 110 years. Right in the, in the heart of the city. It's a nightclub. People go there overnight to dance and, you know, doof, 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 doof. You want to say that again? Doof, 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 doof. Sorry, darling. <laughs> That's how we used to dance in the nightclub when I was young, so. <laughs> um, and they drink and they do drugs and the police are there. There's actually a car park outside, which was once probably the minister's assigned car park that's now assigned to police. The congregation that was there at one point was done. It was no longer continuing, it was no longer sustainable. And the parent denomination thought in its wisdom that it would be wise to sell it without considering what that building meant to the local community and who was there. They might have thought that maybe it was going to be torn down, that it would be replaced by something else. But no, the building remains and it's called Heaven, the nightclub. They even leaned into it. They even leaned into the notion that this was no longer a sacred place. And they made it a tongue-in-cheek comment. So when you read this, please don't, don't think, you know, oh, that is just so far beyond what I comprehend and what I understand, because it's happening right now. It's happening in this world, in this country. And we need to be aware of that. Because while these things are precious to God, if we abuse and if we neglect and if we distance ourselves from God, it is in His best interest to take them away. And in this situation, what did God find? What did He encounter? Not only did He give unto the Babylonians the treasures of the temple, He also gave them what was most precious to His heart, His children. And that became a test for those children so that they would respond in the heart that God had in store for them. The king, he is reveling in his spoils. He has won this great and amazing thing. And if you read in Chronicles and in 2 Kings, you find some harrowing stories of what they did to the Israelites. And then he's there and he's enjoying everything. He's feeling really blessed and happy. And he decides, you know what? I'm going to take these so-called wealthy, noble Jewish people. And I'm going to enfold them into my household. This was a common practice. Why did they do that? To say that those subjugated people would be fully subjugated into their system. Would no longer be Jewish people. They would be Babylonians. It was their ultimate mark of victory and surrender. But did Daniel and his friends surrender? Did they give up? He called the young men without any physical defect. Handsome, 
showing aptitude for every kind of learning and well-informed. Thank you, Betty. Quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians and he assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They needed to learn the language. They needed to study Babylonian history, maybe even come to venerate it, glorify it. They needed to eat the Babylonian food. The world, my friends, asks us to do the same. To drink the Kool-Aid, as it were, of the philosophies and the ideas that are floating around out there that may have zero or even no basis whatsoever in true or genuine wisdom, but where everybody has just agreed, hey, that's all right, that's fine. Have you heard people say things like, oh, if the universe wills, or the universe has a plan, or the universe defines it. Did you know the Bible actually says, do not confuse creation with its creator. And yet, that is literally what is being proposed out there. In Hollywood, you cannot say the name of Jesus, because if you do, ratings go down. But you can talk about the universe all day long. 30, 40 years ago, that would have been insane. And yet today, it is not only commonly accepted, it is general practice. Friends, I'm not suggesting that things were rosy, peach, and keen 30 years ago, but I'm just, I am trying to highlight for us that reality that we live in a world that likes to take that which is sacred and corrupt it and turn it into something that is base. To honor and firstly hold up the creation and neglect the creator behind that which was made. And this is part of that story. But did Daniel and his friends give in? Did they allow themselves to swallow that corruption? No, they did not. Thank you, Betty. In the book of John, Jesus talks about how the world treats us. He says, first and foremost, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me. That is Jesus first. And if you belong to the world, it would, it would love you as its own. Now, this is the part that I really want you to capture. Are you ready? Are you, if someone's asleep next to you, wake them up right now, please. Because if they miss everything else in the sermon, get this. Jesus said, as it is, you do not belong to the world. I have chosen you out of the world. I have snatched you out of the world. You are my treasure. You are that treasure, that golden chalice, that golden lampstand in my temple. I have taken you. And that is why the world hates you. Because it wants you and it cannot have you. Unless you surrender to it. Unless you give your inheritance over to it. Today we are honoring fathers and I said to you earlier, let us honor the greatest father of them all, our heavenly father. But there's a word out there that says, no, you don't have a heavenly father, you are an orphan. I refuse to believe that. There are days when, yes, things are so bad that you can feel like as if you are orphaned, sure. 
But it's in those moments that you need to lean deeper and harder into that truth that my God loves me. And he is with me through the suffering and through the difficulty. That is what Daniel was doing. That is what he was experiencing. He and his mates were in the world, but they recognized that they were not of the world. Thank you, Betty. I want to conclude with this. And I want to apologize because, of course, I could talk about this for a lot, a lot longer. But we all have Father's Day lunches to go to, don't we? (laughs) We need to remember, friends, that our citizenship is not of this world. I showed you last week where Jesus said to Pilate, Yes, it is, as you say, I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. For if it was of this world, my citizens would have come and they would rescue me. But they didn't. The disciples feared the world and so they fled. They ran. Did Jesus punish them for that? No. No, no. They were reacting like children of this world and that's okay. You don't punish the children for doing that which is natural. You teach them, you instruct them, you love them, and you correct them. In the book of Philippians, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from them, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like His glorious body. Jesus returned to His disciples not to punish and not to chastise, but to demonstrate to them that His love for them was enough to conquer the grave, was enough to overcome this world and its folly and its temptations. And its weaknesses. Thomas had to put his his hands in the wounds. Didn't he? What did Jesus say to him? Blessed are those who believe and don't need to see. Don't need to touch. That's you my friends. We are those disciples. We are those children of God. But there's a world out there that wants to convince us of all manner of different things, of all manner of different temptations to get us away from that reality. Let us not fall for those temptations. Let us not fall for the work of the father of this world. You like the passport here? I made it. I was with Eli. And he was saying to me, no, it doesn't look good. Do this. Okay. No, it doesn't look good. Do this. Okay. No, it doesn't look good. Do this. And I, I was thinking about it and I realized to myself, that's what God does. He looks at what we do and He lets us do it. And it may not look great. It may not be brilliant. So He comes along and goes, you know what? It doesn't look that great. Try this. And He gently encourages us until we get this. It's very convincing, isn't it? 
I'm proud. I'm proud of my son who sat with me and encouraged me. But I'm more proud of the fact that God has now used this for me to understand. He can speak through anyone. And if we are committed to that path of discipleship, we may hear that correction as his children and move towards that space where we have that citizenship, where we have that passport. So I pray that you be blessed with the knowledge of this on this day. I invite you to bow your heads with me as you are able. Thank you, God, for your Holy Spirit, for the blessing of knowing that we are called to be greater than what we are, called to be citizens of the kingdom, called to be drawn and attracted to your reality and your love. Lift us, hold us, bless us, nourish us. I pray in your son's special name. And the people of God said, Amen.